up everybody it is Tyler today is Thursday February 3rd just got off the phone with Nick Leupold Optics what an awesome conversation we just had so I'm going to turn that over here right now so you guys can jump into this and listen and and just really take a pretty deep dive into optics and all the things that goes into it it's not a Leupold ad it's not a podcast specifically about Leupold just to help you have a better understanding about the optics and what it is that you're buying so take a listen and i'll catch you when it's over well it's never done that before it's never told me recording in progress could you hear that yeah no and it gave me a warning box that was like you're being recorded and imagine (laughs) the things you don't know get recorded but yeah yeah you can't you can't uh you can't catch people anymore apparently shit well (laughs) hey everybody i'm here I've got Nick from Leupold on the phone, and we're just going to talk about scopes because this is the guy to talk to anytime I have questions. You know, I don't pretend to know everything. I just reach out, and if he doesn't know it, he finds me the answer. He gives me information to read, to learn, and thought it'd be pretty awesome to have uh, this podcast just all about optics and kind of cover some of the stuff I've hit you up in the past for, Nick. So how are things going for you? Oh yeah, going going super well. Uh, I I won't pretend to know everything myself either, uh, and I'm not a uh, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but uh, I, I I do know how the optics work a little bit. So hopefully that we can we can shed some light on uh, some things uh, for for the listeners. And you know, uh, obviously, full disclosure, I work for Loophold, so I'm a little biased towards Loophold. But uh, these optics principles kind of. Uh, uh, transfer to just optics in general so it's not loophole specific stuff that's good because obviously not only going to talk about loophole stuff but i have questions about other scopes they may be named they might be might not but it's still experiences that i've had in the past and i'm like what the fuck so (laughs) yeah well like i said we'll uh we'll try to answer some questions and it's uh uh you know for me scopes uh, when I talk to people about them, there's a lot of confusion or maybe just like, not like maybe they just don't understand how everything works together. And that's totally, that makes sense because you can't take a scope apart. It's not like your rifle that you can take apart and you can see all the working elements and stuff. You can, <laughs> if you're taking your scope apart, that's uh yeah, you're going to be in for a wild ride. So I don't think that's a good idea. So. I don't like the word can't. All right. I can well, show I, you well, how to take you, a scope apart. Yeah, you can do you can do anything you want. I mean, you get a sawzall out, I bet you can take a scope apart. So yeah. You know, on a on a side note, we're talking about hitting that record button and not knowing, you know, in the past, not knowing if somebody is recording you, but now the whole system is like, hey, you're being recorded. Um this is kind of like a like a down, I don't know if it's major news. I just saw it when I was scrolling, but 
check out this dude that got super creative about trying to figure out where well, I think it was actually a chick. Hmm. Chick was trying to figure out where her man was. So she ordered DoorDash to an address she thought he was at. <laughs> Basically tipped the DoorDasher a fat tip and told him keep the food, just take a picture of the cars that are in the driveway. And I'm like, oh damn, like people getting creative <laughs> these days. Like Yeah, you can't you can't hide anymore in this day and age. I mean, there's uh there's so much uh so many cameras everywhere and so much social media and yeah, uh, and and things like that that I hadn't even thought of. So yeah. Dude, who would think to use DoorDash to spy on your cheating significant other? Like if 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 it's got to that point, you probably have some other issues too. So. <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't gonna go there, but you know. uh, yeah, dude. So anyway, a few of the things that we talked about the other day with in relation to scopes and and things like that was kind of related to specifically the eye box, the exit pupil, and you know just kind of talking about the differences and then learning about the optical triangle. Um, you know, there's other things that I've either been exposed to or seen on a board or somewhere in a presentation and, you know, whether or not I've completely understood what they are, you know, you and I kind of discussed just the optical triangle. So we could kind of start there with the magnification and how that relates to the other components. But, right. you know, we were, we were also picking out like what would we how would we order them in you know order of i don't want to say important because i think they're all important but how would we order them in terms of you know how big of an effect they will have on the optic system itself right 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 exactly yeah so um for for people that don't know we we have this thing called the optical triangle and um Basically, it's just your, it's a equilateral triangle. And at each point, there's one thing. So at the, at one point, there's magnification. Then you go to the other side of the triangle, there's eye relief. And um, shit, what was the other one? <laughs> I just lost it. I, I don't have it up in front of me. Magnification, eye relief from field of view. That's the yeah, other one. Yeah, field of um, view. Yep, field of view. So um, <clears throat> basically meaning that like when you're thinking of a scope, uh in the design phase and you want if you want a scope to have really good magnification and really good eye relief well you can't have really good field of view too like if you go to that side of the triangle you're going to leave out the, the the field of view now if you go to i want really good eye relief and field of view maybe now you're not going to have the right magnification so basically the the gist of it is finding that sweet spot in the triangle where you have the right magnification, the right eye relief, and the right field of view. Um, now, uh, we 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 had been talking a little bit about the uh, uh, the eye box, like you said, and the exit pupil. Just for uh, your listeners to understand, exit pupil. When we talk about that, that is the actual disc of light that hits your eye coming out of the scope. Uh, that's dependent on a couple different things. It's dependent on the uh, magnification of the scope and what magnification you're on in that magnification range. And uh, it's also dependent on the um, diameter, the objective diameter. <clears throat> so um, it's actually, there's actually a calculation for it too. So let's say I have a scope that has a 50 millimeter 
<clears throat> diameter objective and I'm on 10 power. Well, 50 divided by 10 is five. That's a five millimeter exit tubule. So that's how you can kind of figure out the, uh, the, the size. Uh, the other cool way that you can do it too, and uh, a visual representation is you take a scope uh, and you put it, uh, you hold it above a table a little bit with the objective sticking up and you shine a light down the scope like a flashlight and you can actually see the exit pupil uh, on the other side. Uh, you'll actually see a uh, shadow of the reticle as well in the exit pupil and that will give you what that disc of light looks like. And then you can play around with the magnification and see how that disc grows or shrinks. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. I remember classes that I've taught where I do exactly what you're talking about. I'd hold the scope, I'd shine the light. I'd say, look, this is your exit pupil here. As we change magnification, we go from high to low, then you'll see that the exit pupil or that beam of light gets smaller or bigger. Yeah. Um, but yep. it also, it also oh. changes depending on how high you you lift it up from the table. You know, if you go three inches or five inches, like that beam of light is changing because it's not it's not a straight beam, is it? It's a convergence. Yeah, there's there's actually like multiple convergence is in the uh, if that's a word convergences. Like it's only, I'm not an engineer, uh, but in the uh, in the optical system there. Um, but yeah, what it, that what you're talking about, like lifting the scope further off the desk or closer, that's also a great representation of the, the proper eye relief, right? Yeah. Because like you'll you'll lift the scope up, and yeah, that disc of light does get bigger, but it also gets fuzzier, which means that that's not actually going to be the distance that you need your eye to be to the scope. You know, you you want that disc of light to be nice and crisp. That's how that because otherwise you're not going to be able to see through the uh, the scope. It's going to be fuzzy. So, um, but uh, yeah, you can actually measure that. <clears throat> you could measure the uh, um, the space in between the desk and the scope where that disc of light is really uh, crisp, and then there's your your eye relief measurement if you had to do that. So, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when you and I first started talking about this optical triangle, you know, and then the the way you explained it was perfect. You're like, you know, if you go too far in one direction, then you are, you know, you're taking away from the other two. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, the way that I kind of visualized it in the beginning was if you have your optic, right, balance is dead center of the scope. But if you start to increase, you know, your field of view, which is towards your objective, then you're decreasing you know, things that relate to the ocular side. And then you showed me that triangle and I'm like, holy shit, if you move the triangle around, you'll notice that, you know, as you shift the triangle in one direction, the other sides get weaker. So I was like, oh shit, okay. Yeah, it, it's so, a good visual representation of it. And the, the, the premise of it is you can't cheat physics. Um, and uh, the, the other part that plays into it too, we didn't really, we didn't talk about it in the triangle there, but is uh, what we call EFL or effective focal length of the scope also. Yeah. And that's basically how long the scope is uh, physically, how long the scope is. And that's why you see higher magnification scopes are longer because they, they need, they need that effective focal length in order to function properly. Now you can take, I've seen some very um, stubby short one to eights or even, you know, three to eight teens or, or something in that magnification range. But when you, when you start 
pushing the limits of the optical systems like that, you're going to give up performance in other aspects, uh, namely eye relief, eye box, that kind of thing. I've seen scopes that are short like that, where <clears throat> when you go from low to high power on the magnification, your eye relief changes a ton, which means now you're sliding, you're, you're altering your position on the rifle back and forth uh, in order to obtain a, uh, a, a clear view through the scope. So, yeah, yeah. Which is not ideal. You want to have your natural point of aim be consistent, you know, through uh, uh, at all magnification ranges on the scope. You don't want to have to be messing around with that. So, oh, 100%, man. And I've, I've actually owned a short, stubby <laughs> 5 to 25, and you crank it up on 25 power, and you can just tell instantly that the clarity of the image itself just never gets better. It doesn't matter how much parallax adjustment you make, you know, and then the farther out in distance you get, there's, is that the target? Is that not the target? I'm having a hard time dis discerning. And, you know, yeah. I, have to, I have to think that that's related to what you're talking about, that, that focal length and, and how mm -hmm. it all plays. That, that it absolutely is. And it's, you know, the angle, the angle of the light and the image coming into the scope and how it is uh, transferred through the optical system inside the scope and then rendered to the, the users, the, the shooter's eye on the other side. Now, not, not, not saying that there aren't advancements in technologies and, and, and uh, mechanical engineering and ways that we've found to, you know, uh, getting uh, good performance. I mean, you look at an eight, eight power scale, you know, was like feet long, right? Because they just didn't have the lens technology. And, uh, you know, computer-aided, you know, design and all that kind of stuff back then to, to come up with uh, uh, solutions to these problems. So down the road, who knows, maybe maybe we'll find ways to do that. But the physics physics and light is also kind of a constant. So again, you can't, it's it's hard to cheat those uh, those elements and get high performance uh, products. So, yeah. No, for sure. I was actually going to ask you about that before we talk about light transmission is, you know, there was a, uh, I believe there was a, like a scout sniper association or a recon sniper foundation raffle taking place for a original M40 sniper rifle. Um, and I just started thinking about old school rifles, you know, stuff that like Chuck Malwini and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the Vietnam eras, like the early Vietnam war where we're using model 70 Winchester and <laughs> scope and, the, yeah. you know, the Redfield scope is you know, half the length of the rifle and you're just like, dude. And you know, the adjustments, there's no adjustments on the actual scope itself. You were adjusting the entire scope inside the rings when you made adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was external on the bases and rings, uh, just like a cantilever, uh, adjustment because that's, you know, <clears throat> the, the scope was literally just a tube with glass in it and a reticle. And yeah. that, that was it. No, no, no moving no, parts. parts. So, yeah. Insane. We should have competition like that. <laughs> you want to bring it back old school like that? I mean, <laughs> have a have a throwback competition with the model seventies and the way back. Dude, dude, that would be that would be really cool. I mean, I I I did it. Oh man, it's been like six or seven years now. Like we took a three to nine by forty out, and we shot a thousand yards with it just to prove that you can shoot a thousand yards 
with a with online power like it it it, it can be done so oh yeah i mean I don't know. I'd be interested to see what people's feedback are, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. Old school is the way, you know, people bitch about unsupported positions or, you know, who knows? Like anything old school is like, what why are we doing that? It's like, okay, I thought it'd be cool, but I guess not. I, I think that'd be pretty cool. You, you also have to dress the part. You got to go down to the local army uh, store, get, a, <laughs> get some Vietnamese uh, stuff to yeah, make oh. it a whole thing. Oh yeah. So in terms of light transmission, we touched on it a little bit, like your, your effective focal length, if it's off or if it's different, then it can affect light transmission. You know, how many times your light is going to change directions or be bent inside the optic from hitting one lens, going to another and another and another. And then, you know, all of that engineering stuff I know is, you know, to us mere mortals, it's complicated. I know there's engineers out there that have this stuff, you know, if you're going to use this lens, then it's got to be this far away from the next lens and so on and so forth. Um, but all of that affects light transmission. And, you know, we, we hear optic companies talk about like, well, we have this much light transmission and it's like, okay, but you know, I had done a series of YouTube videos and this was in the early days. So don't fucking knock me for my YouTube video prowess at the time. Okay. Um, but I had done some YouTube videos with a specific machine that was designed to test recoil tracking of the reticle light transmission. And, you know, as you change magnification, you are changing how much light is cycled through that optic. Right? So, one, you have light transmission, but what magnification are we talking about? And then how much transmission is too much, you know? So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, and light transmission is really just one, one element of the entire, uh, you know, uh, the, the entire system working together. Right. And, um, you companies i haven't seen it so much anymore but they would you would try to give it a number right oh we have like 95 percent light transmission or we have 97 percent light transmission but sometimes that wasn't um that was just on a lens in a system or a group of lenses in the system so you gotta think well, well, well what's 95 percent of 93 percent of 97 yeah. percent so you know the entire you know and in, in a scope even a simple three to nine by 40, uh, you know, you got nine, 10 lenses in there, you know, jump that up to a more complex scope. You might have 14, 15 lenses in there, uh, not to mention the reticle. So, um, you know, how, how are all those, how, how's the light getting through all those, those elements within the scope? Um, and, and like you said, usable light too. Um, you can take a ton of light in, um, I hear people say gather light. It's not really gathering light. Uh, I would say it's maximizing light, but it's what you do with that when it comes inside the scope. And there's some certain, you know, proprietary mechanical and optical uh, designs that we utilize to uh, optimize that light coming in uh, and uh, make it as bright as possible uh, to the shooter's eye without you know, a glare test is a, that, that is a really good test. If, uh, you know, you're on the fence about thinking about a scope, it's good to get a couple of buddies, a couple of shooters together who have different optics, 
go out in the morning when the sun's coming up over the hill and just point those scopes directly at the sun and see, you know, which one handles the light the best. Um, glare is, uh, uh, it, it, it's a very hard thing to control within, uh, within cytoscope. And I, I have to say we do, our, uh, our engineers really do a good job with it. Um, and then there's also the coatings too. They go on the, uh, the outside of lenses. You may see some, some blues or greens or something like that. Those, uh, uh, those coatings are proprietary too. Uh, that's something we work uh, very hard on. And uh, basically, it's, it's working to maximize the, uh, the, the wavelengths of color in the environment that your eyes are, um, uh, that, that your eyes are sensitive to. So, you know, the, the, the reds and the yellows and stuff like that. And that's why, you know, if you take, uh, if you take one of our scopes out, another cool test to do is at night, uh, uh, like when the sun's setting and you get a target and like every 10 minutes you go look through the scope and you see you know how how bright does that target look and it, it's actually kind of it, it's kind of crazy to do because you'll you'll be standing above the rifle you look at the target out there and you're like you're like shit i can't see the target and you'd get down and look through the scope and you're like i can see the target you're like <laughs> it's like magic almost so oh yeah uh, again i don't know how the engineers do it, how they come up with that stuff but uh um, we do have a, uh, we do have a world-class, uh, optical engineering team and a laboratory where we're designing all this stuff from the ground up. They, they're, they are super good at it. Well, caveat on that stuff. I mean, you know, at our facility, we have, uh, an area that we call the field course and you basically, you hike up like, uh, let's call it 40 meters and you get to the first station. And that would be station one and then you go to station two and station three and so on and so forth right and when you're at a certain station you are looking for those targets that are marked one two three and, that, and that's what you would engage from those positions and you know a lot of our classes like pr2 or law enforcement we don't get to the field course until after lunch or you know in the evening sun can be going down and it's like look the sun's going to set in two hours. we got plenty of time to get through this course of fire. But at the same time, the challenge that they're presented with is the sun is setting in the same direction that we are shooting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's in their face and they're like, oh, it's so hard to see. And I'm like, I see fine. I don't know what your problem is. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, it, like I said, I, you know. I'm biased and I believe in our products, but I, I always encourage people take them out in the field and put them to the test. Cause I, I know how they perform. And, uh, that, that's a testament to that right there. The, the other downside, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say for, you know, perspective buyers out there optics, you know, and there's, there's other quality optics out there, but, um, don't make purchasing decisions inside a, inside a gun shop or inside a store that has fluorescent lights um that's not a good representation of how a scope will uh function optically out in the real world uh real world light is much different than fluorescent light so just be be wary of that it's a very interesting yeah i didn't i didn't really think about that that's a good one hmm. mm -hmm. okay. yeah, so. so as far as lens coatings and 
basically what I wrote down in my, in my notes of things to ask and bug you about and is uh, either preserving or enhancing the color spectrum. And, you know, yeah, you're, part, of, part of this uh, question comes from, I've looked through some optics, Nick, and, you know, but again, not trying to be biased, not as biased as you anyway, but everybody knows <laughs> I shoot for you. And, and, and I, you know, I swear <laughs> up and down by Leupold, but I've shot everything. I've literally shot Night Force and Vortex and Schmidt and Bender. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to come across, a, you know, a top brand name scope that I haven't got to put to some type of test. And there's some out there where I look through them and I see like, like a, a haze around the target that I'm looking at. Or I can see like what appears to be three different images stacked on top of each other. Of like uh, yeah. a red, a green, or a blue, or you know, like it almost seems like the image is getting split in the scope and it's not coming back together at the right point in that exit pupil. But I don't know what actually causes it. Yeah, you're yeah, you're right on. Uh, actually, you're smarter, smarter than you look, also. So yes, um, <laughs> um, yeah, that actually mostly doesn't actually have to do with lens coatings. Um, that's uh, what we call chromatic aberration. And uh, you can uh, write that one down. It'll sound very smart to you, all your shooting buddies. Um, but what, what, what chromatic aberration basically is, we're talking about is, uh, like you mentioned, so uh, it, an image comes into a scope and it kind of gets torn apart, uh, for lack of a better term, when it's going through the scope. And then once that image gets back to your eye, it gets sandwiched back together. Now, if there's something not quite right in the optical system or um, maybe some of the lenses weren't optimized or, you know, I don't know, there could be, there, there's a myriad of things design-wise that could be going on in there to cause it. But um, if, it, there, if the image isn't corrected uh, uh, right when it comes out, you're going to see those kind of ghost images, I guess you would call them, yeah. online. So like, yeah, if you're looking at an IPSC target and you're just looking at the vertical line on the side, maybe you're seeing some yellows or some purples or something like that on the uh, on the edge of the line, and that's that's because the image didn't quite come back together uh, like it should have through the other side of the scope. So, um, which you know the scope is probably going to function just fine, and you might still be able to hit your target, but um, it, it's kind of indicative of a. Uh, an optical system that they may not be performing uh, as it should. So, and that's that in the past, you know, that's trying to keep things simple uh, for the students, you know, for their understanding, you know, is how I explained it. Like there is possibly a lens or something like that, that isn't quite lined in the right spot, or it's, you know, maybe there's a, uh, what do we call it? Like a tolerance variant yeah. that yeah, it, could be, it could be a tolerance or it could be a spec or it could be, you know, the, the choice of glass, um, you know, uh, and, and we could, we can talk about glass too. Cause that, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the huge questions. I'm sure you get that a lot from your students in, in class. So, yeah. Um, well, I, I hear a lot, like, should I send it back? I'm like, I mean, if we look at another one, is it going to be any different? I think that's just inside their tolerance specifications. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, and glass quality plays into that too. And uh, um, 
it's uh, glass is kind of like uh, lumber, I guess um, you, you call it. There's different grades of glass and different levels of glass. So uh, depending on the, you know, where you're trying to hit price point wise on the scope or save costs or something like that, you might choose a different glass versus a more expensive glass. Um, and, and then the glass also plays back to, you know, our, you know, the, the company is actually designing the optics systems and that kind of, that kind of stuff. So, um, where, uh, where, where you get the glass from is kind of irrelevant. I know that's a question I get all the time. It's like, people just want to know where it comes from. Does it come from, you know, Japan, Switzerland or wherever, um, there's only so many companies in the world that produce glass for what we do. And uh, a lot of them, you know, uh, a lot of other of our competitors buy at the same places, but it's the, the proprietary specs and designs of the glass along with choosing the best grade of glass uh, for that, um, for that uh, optical system. Uh, that's kind of what plays into the, the performance of the scope too in the real world. Okay. I got you. I mean, I think for oh. the, I think for the what 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 it, what what am I trying to say here? Like for the average user, right? I hear a lot of guys always talking about glass quality. Not that it's mm. not important, but at the same time, I feel like that's the that's the fallback question of well, well, what's the glass? What's the glass quality? Is it is it Japanese? Is it German? It's like, you know, I, yeah. I feel like when you know when you know enough just to be dangerous, that's your fallback question. Well, what's the glass? <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah, and, and and glass quality is important. And uh, you know, one thing we talk about is edge to edge clarity too. Like, is the is the glass? You know, maybe in the center of the image, it's really clear. But, you know, when once you actually look up uh, towards the the outside of the image, maybe it's not so clear. Um, so there, there's different different elements there. Um, but then also, you know, uh, it's it, it's the glass quality, but it's also the design and how the, the scope is built, too. I've seen scopes that are are super clear that have incredible glass quality, uh, but they maybe are not as durable, right? Uh, and that's all, almost, it's almost goes back to, maybe we should almost make another uh, pyramid, right? Yeah, <laughs> where you're trying to find the sweet spot between having a rugged scope that's also clear, that's also precise, right? And getting having all those three things marry up, um, you know, and finding the sweet spots there. Hell yeah. I mean, <clears throat> again, like the, the, the glass quality is definitely important. Um, but I also feel like that's just a tip, you know, that's just a portion of, you know, what all the top manufacturers are, you know, battling or developing optics is, you know, everybody's using good glass. I mean, if you're at the top, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no secret where to go. And uh, you know, if you're in the optics world and you're you got a major company, you're gonna you're you're gonna be getting good glass. But um, I think some of the other questions as a consumer you should be asking is like, you know, 
And some of it's probably proprietary, so you might not know, but you know, how is the mechanics on the inside, like the mechanism, you know, its ability to hold zero, you know, the coatings on the lenses to, you know, assist with those light, low light conditions, you know, like there's so much more than just the glass quality. I feel like people get hung up on it too much. Um, yeah. Um, well, yeah. One of the things that uh, I'll, I'll do going out to matches and stuff I have in my kit is a uh, cutaway of a scope. So it's like a scope that we took uh, and had uh, uh, EDM down the middle. So you, you, uh, so you can see all the internal parts of the scope. And it's, uh, it's amazing watching people's faces when they see that. They're like, holy crap, look how complicated that is. Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, I, have, I like showing them that because I think, uh, well, well, one, I, uh, I like to pull the curtain back and show them you know, what's actually happening inside the scope when you're adjusting this or that or turning your adjustments, right? But also, I think it speaks to our quality. Uh, you look inside and you see all the precise um, aerospace grade aluminum parts on the inside. And that's that's one aspect of our scope. So why they're so light, we're using very uh, premium uh, components material on the inside, mostly aluminum, uh, to uh, keep the weight down and uh, to make sure that they, uh, they, they perform out in the field. Oh, we're going to get to the weight part for sure. Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, and that kind of leads me into the, the lenses, like you, you had mentioned like some optic might have nine, some might have 14. I know with my previous experience in the optical arena, like, you know, I was dealing with optics that had 11 or 12 and what is like one, how many can you get away with? And then two what's like, what's the benefit of all of these lenses? Like is more better is less better, or is it all based on the engineering of that maximizing light as you called it? Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I, and again, I'm not an engineer, uh, but I think it goes to having the right number to maximize the performance of the scope for what you need now. Um, you say, like we were talking about, if you need to decrease the effective foam length of the scope, so we're going to make it uh, a stubbier version, say of uh, 5 to 25 or something like that, I'm probably going to have to put extra lenses inside the system to compensate for the uh, light coming in uh, differently um, in order to, to get an image. Now, that may actually, you know, not create the best performance uh whereas you know on the other side maybe <clears throat> maybe i make the effective length of the scope bigger and i don't need as many lenses but is that really now am i am i losing some performance from not having enough lenses in there uh to maximize you know the light and transmission and everything like that so it is i think it is just uh having the the right solution for the problem and uh without uh compromising uh the performance so yeah okay so in regards to the lenses and then also like the the parts on the interior the mechanical aspect of it you have a let's call it mark 5 hd let's go with the 5 to 25 or you know um yeah let's stick with the 5 to 25 and then we compare it to let's say 
you know, a razor HD or something like that, where it's a comparable magnification. I, th I think it's three to 27 or something in that ballpark. Why is it that that optic weighs a considerable amount more? I mean, if you look around the NRL Hunter arena, you're not going to find very many heavy class entrants that are running Vortex razors simply because it's almost it's almost too much for you to be under the weight factor when you're when you're trying to fight ounces to be under 16 pounds or under 12 pounds like that's a heavy scope right yeah yeah it is a it, it is a heavy scope yeah the um we we have found that yeah the um the mark five and the 3.618 have been super popular and they're all hunter just because the weight is low um but you're not but, any performance you know like no. the performance yeah. is there the you know the clarity the light transmission like everything that you want is there but you didn't have to weigh it down with a four pound kettlebell to do it so i'm just curious um, where does the weight either come from or where is the weight savings yeah the uh the, the weight comes from it's it's it will well, one inside of a scope, regardless of brand or anything, the heaviest thing in there is lenses. So um, the, the lenses create some of the weight for sure, but it is also your material choices for uh, the internal parts of the scope. And uh, I can't really speak to other brands and stuff, but I, I have seen a lot of, you know, using steel and uh, brass or something like that on the inside where those materials are quite a bit heavier uh, than say uh, aluminum or titanium or other, other things like that. Now, aluminum and, and, and other are more expensive, but <clears throat> we find that the, uh, the weight savings is a huge benefit for us, not just for um, you know the weight that you have on your rifle, obviously for the NRL Hunter, there's uh, considerations to be in which class, or if you're, you know, if you're a backcountry hunter, or you're on, you know, <laughs> deployment or something like that, and you got to carry your rifle, you know, miles and miles, those ounces add up. But um, it actually plays back to the performance of the scope, a, and doing recoil testing and sending a a shit ton of G's through these scopes uh, to see how they perform. The lighter scope actually dissipates the energy a lot more efficiently than um than a heavier scope and that and the materials certain materials dissipate and handle energy better than other materials and that's all done on purpose um it is it is harder to do um I, i'm not a machinist also so i but i i do the tours here at work and i see a lot of machinists come through and when i show them like the small internal aluminum parts that are threaded and how small the threads are and how precise they are. Uh, they're just like, how do you guys do that? Like the, uh, I guess machining aluminum, uh, really small, little precise aluminum parts is a difficult thing to do. Now, I think that, you know, that's a benefit that we have that we, we, um, machine everything in house. We've been doing it for, you know, 70 plus years. So we have a lot of, uh, uh, we have a lot of expertise there a lot of knowledge when it comes to that but uh, yeah the, the the weight savings is uh it's a it's a benefit all around it's a performance benefit and it's a benefit to the shooter not having to carry as much weight on, on top of the rifle
Oh, I agree 100%, man. And with in regard to the lens, you have, and, and this will kind of bounce up to another question that I had. I think they'll all kind of tie together here pretty soon. But mm -hmm. you have all of these lenses, and they have different shapes, like, you know, some concave, some convex, mm -hmm. depending on how you need to change the direction of light, right? Right. So, yep. Um, you know, how does the shape of these lenses, obviously it has a lot to do with your, your focal length too, because if you got a short snubby scope, you're probably going to have to have a little more drastic angles um, versus a longer optic where it, the angles are a little more subtle, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, making sure that those, those, those lens designs are uh, again geared towards performance and not just uh, uh, making something look really good on the the spec sheet, right? Because uh, um, that you know you'd be you'd two comparable scopes, and you're like, well, well, why does this one have less of this or this one more of this? Uh, but yeah, doesn't always speak to a real world performance uh, of of the scope. Um, yeah, there's. There's definitely some different lens uh, considerations when you're talking about the designs of them like that. And I'm uh, uh, probably not the best person. We should probably get one of our optical engineers on here one of these days and have a real in-depth conversation about the optical engineering part of it. Uh, but uh, it's it, I, I can tell you it's super complicated. When I walk into the lab and I see what they're doing, I'm just like, oh, I, that lost me. So. <laughs> so as far as the lens shape and like, how drastic that curve is. Is that where some of the vignetting or the, you know, earlier you spoke about like deforming or, you know, look at the edges of your optic, look on the edges of your field of view and see if there's distortion. Is that where we're seeing a lot of this stuff take place is because lens angles are too drastic? Yeah, it could be, it could be lens angles. I would say it's probably, it could be lens angles combined with, you know, the grit, the grade of glass, um that that is being used inside the scope um that those probably are the two major things that play into seeing that um it's the it's probably the most apparent i would say when uh you're looking at an lpvo you know if it's a one to six or a one to eight or a one to ten now those are coming out um <clears throat> on one power right when you're you're looking through the scope and if you're scanning and then you you really see the distortion right around the side lenses uh you know the the straight lines on the door don't look so straight when they're at the edge of the scope um that's actually kind of it's it's a it's a harder thing to do on uh on the lpv okay yeah it's it's something to look for it, it'll give you if you it'll give you a good basis uh on like what is a uh high-end optical system versus you know something else so well i know just looking through a few one by eight one by ten some of those one by with a big magnification range that i've definitely seen those issues where you run into distortion and things of that so yeah it makes a lot of sense um <laughs> as far as the mechanics are concerned I'm going to bring up a story here right now. We weren't together. Me and Russ were not at the same match when his little snafu happened, but we were uh -oh. together when my little snafu happened. And, um, you know, so he had on day one done really well at this competition. 
on day two, he was pulling his gear out. You know, he made the mistake of, of uh, you know, setting his rifle in a position where it, it did not stay in the position that he left it in. <laughs> so now it didn't take a far fall. I mean, how tall is a rifle? 40, 50 inches, right? So mm-hmm. you're talking like the scope sits in the middle of the rifle, maybe closer to the buttstock. So in reality, what the scope fall, maybe a maximum of 18 inches. And, you know, he lost his zero on the side that the rifle fell uh, by about one mil. So that happened to him with an optic that isn't loopled, right? Now, I have a similar story where it was an accident. It, it got dropped. Uh, it wasn't leaning up against anything. It literally just like my sling came undone from the, uh, the, uh, quick, quick release. And Mm -hmm. there it goes. I'm like, Oh shit. And the question is like, Oh, you're going to have a zero. I'm like, I'm going to find out, I guess. And (laughs) I didn't have have a single problem. Yeah. No issues with that. And I felt like my fall was a lot more drastic than what he experienced. So, you know, what type of mechanics are prone to that type of movement? And then how do you guys combat some of that stuff? I know there's, there's always a point of failure, right? But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the name of the game is, is who can reach the highest point before the failure or get, you know, pretty <laughs> respectable. That's, that's, that, that's absolutely the point. Like you said, everything can break. I mean, you hit, you hit something in exactly the right or wrong spot. Um, you're going to, you're going to damage something. But uh, I think that that goes to the testing that we do and the amount of uh, uh, testing, uh, high impact testing that we do with these scopes uh, to make sure that they, uh, they hold zero like that. And there's, there's definitely engineering things uh, that are going inside the scope to make sure that um, you know you don't get movement like that when you don't want it. Um, probably the most uh, thing that plays a role is probably the erector spring. And we that's actually one thing that, like when I, when I was talking about that cutout of the scope, and so you can see all the internal parts, it doesn't have the erector spring there because that's super proprietary. Because uh, we, do, we, do uh, we do it a different way uh, than some other manufacturers do. We used a different component or a different material <clears throat> that uh, we found better. So we like to keep that kind of proprietary secret. So, um, so everybody knows about the erector spring. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about like, if you pick up a typical scope and you look on the bottom, you'll, you'll most likely see a, like a hole with a plug in it. And you're talking about that spring. Yeah, there, there, there's a hole with a plug in it. Yeah, some scopes you'll see there's actually like a thing protruding outside the bottom of the scope. Yes. And that's part of the ring that you don't see that on ours. That's not part of the, the design. But there is an actual spring in there that is causing the tension back up to the erector system. That's the tube within the main tube that's moving around when you're making your adjustments. And the key is having the proper amount of force applied back up to the erector system and back against the adjustments in order for, well, one, everything to track correctly, but two, for it to survive recoil and then impacts from different directions too. 
Um, you know, we obviously, like I talked about, we, we do a lot of testing for recoil uh, on rifles, but we also do side impact testing too. Um, you know, a lot of our optics are chosen for military contracts. We just got the new Mark 22 contract for the army. That's the MRAD and the uh, M110 refurb uh, contract is the Mark 5 3.618. And, you know, when um, you send those scopes off for testing, they're, you know, Crane and uh, the different uh, organizations, they're doing their own independent testing. And that is a, along with uh, a lot of different directional impact testing because guys are getting in and out of Humvees and knocking stuff against, you know, posts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you, you definitely want to make sure that the scope is going to hold zero. Oh, 100% or you can't, you can't trust it. You can't rely on it, you know, and it's not just competitors out there playing a game with these scopes, but military law enforcement, like there has to be a level of trust there. Has Abs to yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I'll, <clears throat> it's nice. Uh, <laughs> I'll say from a marketing standpoint, because like you could, you know, you'd be like, oh, well, that Nick, you know, he just works with the pool and he's just kind of being a shill for the company. And it's nice to have those independent tests too. Like, hey, the stuff went through all this other testing and got chosen because it performed the best, right? So, um, and that's, uh, again, that's a testament to the engineers. We, we're, I'd say we're, we're an engineering heavy company. Uh, I think there's at least 80, maybe 90 engineers. They all get along, they're all friends. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's, it's good to have some disagreements sometimes. Yeah, I, I couldn't say that they're all friends. Um, it, you know, the, probably the, 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 the uh, engineering team that is uh, hated the most is the ones that are responsible for trying to destroy the scopes, right? <laughs> the, the, the impact testing guys, you know, when, uh, and when the scope, because we, you know, nothing goes to market without it being thoroughly tested. So you know, and there are times where it fails, you know, you'll, the, the design team will be making a scope and, you know, I don't went to the impact tester and it, it, uh, it had a catastrophic failure. And now you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out root cause and why did that do that? And how do we need to change the design? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they get the Christmas cards like everyone else does. So <laughs> trying to imagine, you know, when a group of them get together to hang out at lunch, what that conversation sounds like, like, Hey, Bob, <laughs> What the, what's the 12th digit of pi and you're like what what the fuck but just yeah I, i'm just a fly on the wall there just pretending uh yeah <laughs> trying to trying to soak some stuff up like a sponge so yeah so the next one is parallax and this is kind of a two-part question i don't remember if it was you and i talking about this or if i got to read it in some of the uh information that you sent me over but mm -hmm. first part was parallax and where Leupold sets there like perfect. Am I saying that right? Uh, well, so it, yeah, it's the dependent on. So a lot of our scopes actually are, um, you know, more your uh, hunting scope, right? And maybe doesn't even have a side focus adjustment on it or side parallax adjustment. Yeah. And uh, those scopes are all set at 150 yards. We've, you know, in your average hunting scenario where you're not really shooting over 500 yards. 600 yards, 150 yard parallax is the, the sweet spot where it's going to, it's, it's going to be good at enough for a kill shot, right? Um, yeah. The deviation is actually pretty small, even at longer distances, but for uh, what you and I do mostly uh, when we're trying to hit little 
six inch plates at 800 yards, uh, you definitely need a side focus or uh, parallax adjustment on the side of the scope. Uh, so, um, you know, ours go all, all the way out to infinity. I believe on the Mark V, the lowest marking on there is 75 yards, but there is quite a bit of over travel. Uh, those scopes actually go down to about 40 yards uh, with the with the over travel. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And just, I guess, to explain a little bit what parallax is, uh, the easiest way I, I can explain it is like when you're looking through your scope, you have your, your target that you're trying to hit downrange and you have your reticle and those two do not exist on the same plane. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're moving your eye around, it may seem like the reticle swimming in front of the target. And basically when you're, when you're turning your parallax adjustment, you're sandwiching those two, uh, that image of the target and reticle onto the same plane in order for those to, uh, not swim, you know, so the reticle doesn't swim in front of the target anymore. I think that's probably the best way I can describe it. So, yeah, no, for sure. That was, that was pretty much where I was going with it. Um, and then as far as the lens, right. Or, or the actual parallax system, you know, being mm -hmm. in the front of the scope. Um, now this is an issue that I've seen three times now, two times it was with one manufacturer, you know, an old one that I worked for a while ago. And then another one is with one of your direct competitors. And this was recent where we had guys who would adjust their parallax, right? Because I'm always harping on them, like, set your parallax, set your parallax. And yep. we were doing drills on the 100-yard line. They'd set their parallax, they move their head, make sure everything is perfect the way that it's supposed to be. And then they take a shot and everything would go fuzzy and he's like i can't get my parallax set and i'm like what are you talking about he's like every time i shoot it it like i have to reset it and i'm like that's odd it sounds like some shit's moving around in there that's not supposed to be moving around in there um so is that something yeah. that is like it's gonna happen over time or is it just like those particular scopes maybe you know um you know, the way it was designed, it's going to fail over time. Like I know that there's a lens system in there that's moving as you're adjusting that side parallax, but I'm not really sure how it's designed to stay in there forever. Right. Yeah. Cor correct. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a little group of lenses, uh, could be just one lens depending on the design that's in front of the reticle, meaning that it's more towards the objective side of the scope. And that's what's it's it is physically moving back and forth when uh, when you're turning that uh, dial on the side of the scope or top of the scope if you're another scope manufacturer. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it, if it's going fuzzy like that, that probably means that there's something loose inside that uh, that subassembly of uh, lenses. There could be a lens moving in a holder, or it could be the whole uh, assembly moving a little bit, uh, when, when you, when you shoot. So, um, again, you got to think about all the recoil going back up into the scope and something's a little loose, that would make sense that it would go a little fuzzy. You have to readjust. It probably will be clear again. You shoot and probably go fuzzy again. So, um, that, uh, that definitely sounds like something loose in there. I would say that it's not guaranteed that that, that is going to uh, fail. I mean, I've, 
I've seen scopes that we've made. And when, we, when did we start making side focus scopes? I mean, we started making uh, object, uh, uh, adjustable objective even scopes, you know, back in the late 80s and stuff like that. And you still see them working just fine. So it's not necessarily going to uh, fail at some point in time. But uh, yeah, if, if, if it's man-made, it can break. So there you go. <laughs> For sure, man. For sure. Um, yeah, I thought I had just read something about there with your side focus parallax. When you are manufacturing the optic, you can determine where you want, uh, not, you know, not, not talking about your fixed parallax scopes, but your side focus, where you want those optics to be, you know, parallax perfect at now you still have to adjust for different distances but you can either choose like you know 100 yard close. Uh, our scope is going to be perfect or we can choose infinity and our scope will be perfect at that point in space like is that making sense yep yeah yeah that makes sense i see what we're talking about yeah where are i think uh, uh we had put out a um uh, an infographic a while ago I don't know if it's still on the website, but it kind of explained what you're talking about, where the long range scopes like that are optimized for uh, uh, the parallax at the longer distances, because that's where the biggest deviation is going to be, right? So um, at, at distance. So um, that's uh, that's really where they're going to be um, performing at. Now, no, not to say like, I mean, I dial the parallax down to a hundred yards and use zero in at a hundred yards and it, it should be, uh, it should be unnoticeable, I would say to, uh, to the shooter, but from a optical design standpoint, that that's where the designers are, uh, optimizing the, where the, uh, like, uh, the, uh, Parallax uh, ratio, I guess, uh, is optimized at those those infinity at the longer distances, which makes sense, right? Because if you're off, if your parallax is off a little bit at a thousand yards on a you know eight inch plate, it's going to make a difference. So, no, definitely, and that's that's exactly what I was thinking about because when I read this, I was like, "Holy shit, that that's smart!" Like we're not shooting hundred yard competitions, we're we're out there right. you know, shooting distance, we're competing, we're, you know, military, law enforcement, whatever, like that optimization for that distance was, was a uh, eye opener. I'm like, Oh shit. Like that's pretty, that's pretty different. It, thing right there. It, yeah. And it, it, it's actually something, you know, full transparency. Like when we started talking about it internally, it's something I had never thought about. I like from a, you know, cause I don't design the scopes and I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, like where do I want my, do I want to be, you know, dead nuts at a uh, hundred yards or do I want to be optimized at, you know, uh, at distance uh, where there's way more variables in play. So I was like, well, definitely, definitely distance. So yeah, that makes sense. So as far as the turrets are concerned, um, you know, and talking with uh, Francis a little bit and again, just always trying to learn more. Right. And, uh, you know, I'd had some issues a while back where I was using a chronograph to try and get muzzle velocity. Now I was here in Nevada, took my rifle out, chronoed, 
got my, my muzzle velocity, didn't think anything of it. Uh, I was really just looking at standard deviation. And then I shot the distance and I trued my rifle out the way I always do, right? I, I prefer to use the distance to, you know, the bullet doesn't lie versus a chronograph. Uh, so then I get up to, gotcha. I get up to Montana and we're at the, uh, I believe it was the match that, uh, it was a match that me and you both did this past year and the applied. Okay. Chaz's match up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, yep. you know, I don't normally do it, but Russ is like, oh, we should just verify chrono. And I'm like, ah, whatever. All right, let's do it. So I chrono and it's, it's like telling me I'm shooting a lot different and I'm like, shit. So I'm like, all right, well, let's verify it. Since we have the ability, let's just verify it at distance. So we plug it in for like 1,210 or whatever that big target was out there. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty high over the target. And I'm like, damn, I don't know what's going on. So I put it back the original, what I trued at. And I'm like, okay, let's see if this works. Long story short, what I trued with was the correct muzzle velocity. What I got from the chrono was not correct, but it turns out that talking with Francis and then actually putting my rifle through that whole ballistics lab, that my bullets ballistics, my BC was changing drastically from what was advertised by the company, mm -hmm. tips, right? Uh, I think it's like 0.34 right. is what they advertise, but I was coming out of the radar at 0.332. So my muzzle velocity ah. was spot on with what the chronograph had said, but I was using the wrong ballistic coefficient, right? And that was nothing that I, I could have not known that unless I started to play with the BC and really fine tune the right results in there, right? But then me and him got to talk, right. me and you got to talking, and we were talking about like, uh, and I also had this conversation with, uh, with uh, Joe over at uh, Geo Ballistics, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm putting this new feature in where you can tell the calculator that you have a, you know, a margin of error in your scope turret." And I'm like, "Well, that's interesting." So I started thinking about it. Like, you know, you can use a chronograph, but if your BC is changing drastically, then you know that's gonna that's gonna make your results off. And then if your scope turret at far distances is having a margin of error where maybe it's a 2% margin of error. So if you dial 10 mils, are you on 9.8 or are you on 10.2? So how does that all, you know, in the whole moral of the story is I found that truing my rifle kind of evens out all of those factors. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that they all, they all play nice together and it makes sense in the calculator. So yeah. yeah. Like, in the calculator, everything's working and, right. um, yeah, you know, but as far yeah. as margin of error go again, like <laughs> the best company in the world at machining, but there's still going to be tolerances that the machines you're using are capable of holding. So is it common for mm -hmm. scopes to have a turret tolerance and like, what's the industry standard for that? Yeah, I, I can't really talk to what the industry standard would be. That's an interesting thing because like, uh, and I know we test other people's scopes here and stuff. 
And, uh, but I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I, I know that, you know, there are, like you said, there's just, there's stacking tolerances, right? And the adjustment is a conglomeration of a multitude of parts all trying to perform uh, together. Um, I will say the Mark Fives do a phenomenal job. And uh, from all the testing that I've seen from just scopes coming off the line and, and like France, like you talked about Francis, you know, uh, uh, Francis is probably one of the most detail-oriented shooters that I've ever seen, and uh, very picky about his stuff too. Even when uh, I was trying to get him on the team, um, he wanted to evaluate the scope for months, you know, to make sure that it worked. Uh, I we I see less than one percent in our adjustments, and that, that's kind of what um, what I would expect with the tight tolerances, right? That we use um, for for all the machining purposes and stuff like that um <clears throat> i'm not it, i i rely on francis and P, uh, other shooters like that on the team uh to give me feedback like that i'm not that i'm not good enough to shoot that difference so um uh but you know <laughs> him working for applied ballistics is nice because they got the whole the radar set up with the pdm and the whole thing oh, yeah. and uh, he's he's got all the gadgets to test that stuff mm -hmm. so uh i don't i don't know if that less than one percent is uh um an industry-wide standard. I can't. I can't speak to that, but I know that uh, that's what we that's what we adhere to. So that's pretty damn good, dude. I mean, you think about that. Like, again, let's use the ten mil ten mil adjustment for easy math. One percent would put, you know, a tenth. So yeah, a tenth exactly. Yeah. So which uh, damn good. I mean, most people don't realize this because there's still a lot of you know, misconception about mills and minutes, but, you know, a tenth of a mill is about a third of an inch at a hundred yards. And most of you can't shoot that well. So, you know, to say that, oh, this scope has a 1% margin of error, like it's trash, like yeah. get the fuck out. Like, especially distance too, when you're talking about all the variables that are going into it. And then, like you said, the, the BC is changing through the flight and the muzzle velocity is you know maybe not correct like there's so many variables that go into it but uh, that's the benefit is i know from my scope i know my scope is tracking and i, I don't have to worry about that part of it so uh um there's there's always that now there's a <laughs> there's always other elements that are you know you're banging your head against the wall trying to figure out so <laughs> 100 man and that was one of the first tests i did when i got a hold of the mark five was ran out there and put together a tracking board and like sure enough all the way up to 15 mils and all the way back down to zero i mean you know and yeah, yeah. that's uh yeah for uh if your listeners anyone listening to this who hasn't gone seen tyler video that uh tracking test video that's a phenomenal video to show what what like a, a great representation of what we're talking about here yeah i mean you want to have faith in your shit you got to go out and put it through the ringer you know well i you know i i don't want to point to the scoreboard but you know we were the most winning precision rifle team uh last year all around so uh you know scoreboard so there you go <laughs> i agree i agree. yeah um uh, so my final two questions is uh is there any new things in the works that you can talk about um, you know what? Nothing that I can really talk about at this point. Uh, we're always 
uh, we're always innovating. We're always, uh, we're, we're always trying new stuff. The cool thing um, is uh, now with the, the team, like I, I just talked about, you know, growing and, and having shooters like you and Francis and uh, Chad Heckler on the team and other guys like that, real, really knowledgeable guys, uh, like getting, getting the feedback from the team and then implementing it into the, the new products is, uh, is a lot of fun. And uh, so we, we've got some good stuff coming. Well, the one thing, the one new thing that we didn't talk about, and it's, it's kind of a small thing, but uh, man, it, every, every time I show it off, people are like, oh, that's so cool, is the, uh, the speed dial that we made for the Mark V. Um, so it's just, it's just an extra dial, um, you know, uh, but we took off the third revolution of numbers, moved the second row up, and then the first row is huge, bold numbers. So um, it you makes it incredibly fit. It makes it incredibly fast to dial to the number. And if your eyes are getting, you know, if, if you're aging a little bit, everyone's eyes degenerate over time, it definitely makes it easier to see the numbers too. And that's a, that's a product that came directly from the team. Um, so um, I, I think that's the, uh, the first product in a, in a line here of stuff that we're going to have uh, uh, coming down the pipe. So that was my sales pitch right there. I was actually literally just going to bring this up. Like, <laughs> old or you have glasses that are one inch thick or bigger this is for you like but you still yeah. oh so, sorry yeah it's only still your thunder yeah no uh uh i mean i we we had guys on the team that uh would uh, uh bolt on those magnifying uh that met well magnifying lens in front of the dial so that they could see the numbers and uh so that we kind of got rid of that so um, yeah, we, we got that. I mean, the PR2 reticle came about that way too. Um, yeah. you know, that was listening to the team and the shooters and making a solution that works for them. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we got some good stuff coming shot show next year. Uh, we'll have some pretty cool stuff to talk about. So, okay. And then final question, cause I know you're a busy man and you pretty much run loophole single-handedly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> If it was your decision, they come to you and they said, Nick, what is the next thing we're going to make? What is on your dream list of things that you can disclose where you're like, this is what we would do? <laughs> besides some uh, besides some more cool hats and jackets and stuff like that and some, some eyewear. Um, it's legit, man. I'm not going to lie. The clothing is. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've done a good job with clothing. Um, you know what? It's, it's, I don't really have anything. The thing is like, to me, and you know, my main, one of my main positions here at loophole is, or tasks is, um, is taking the feet, not only from the protein, but like, I have a whole host of like, you know, tactical trainers or even, you know, the social influencers and people like that and taking that information and giving it back to the product line managers so that they can make educated decisions on product, you know, and voice of customer is super important. Um, as long as we're listening to the voice of customer and still innovating and, and, and really making performance based products, cause that's what we do. Everything needs to perform. I'm, I'm a happy camper. I don't really have any pet, uh, pet projects in the work. Uh, works right now that I can think of. Uh, that, like I said, there's some super cool stuff coming down the pipe, especially for uh, for some carbine stuff uh, that uh, 
uh, I'm involved in in testing and giving feedback and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But uh, well, you've also got the you know the Delta Point Pro is a little I don't want to say old, <laughs> but it's older. And then you got the Micro. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We got the micro, which if you guys haven't seen the DP micro, it looks, it looks a little funky. Uh, but like once you get behind it and shoot it, you're like, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Like, and we've actually even had some, some, uh, um, three letter, you know, organizations using it. And, uh, it's a, it, it's a really cool red dot. If you want to get into red dots, but you're not sure, uh, you want, you know, you don't want to alter your slide or anything like that, but you can throw it on just a standard Glock slide and, uh, it's, it's super concealable, uh, performs really well. You, you think you would think that the smaller window would be a drawback, but it's actually counterintuitive. It actually, the, the housing just disappears and all you see is this dot and it is, uh, it's super cool. So I'm really excited about the micro. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll be, We'll be doing some more performance red dot stuff here in the in the semi near future. So that that line will be growing. So the only thing I'm going to add to that is, you know, for all you guys out there, if you go and you Google a picture of the DP micro or you know Delta Point micro, again, put your put your you know thoughts and opinions in your fucking back pocket until you actually play with it, because like he said, it. It just doesn't look what it doesn't look like what you're used to. That yeah, it's just it's abnormal looking. We uh we call it the Glock mullet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, so yeah, but I mean, I was impressed. And again, when I first saw it, I'm like, what the hell is that shit? But <laughs> yeah, no, it, it works. It works though. So uh, yeah, no, we got we got some cool stuff coming. So um, and we're not and and like with the micro, like I, that's just proof that we're not. We're not afraid to innovate. We're not afraid to try something different. And uh, as long as it as long as it performs, so yeah. Hey man, if it works, it ain't wrong, right? Exactly. There we go. <laughs> hey, well, awesome, bro. I appreciate you just taking an hour out of your day and uh, helping with this podcast and, and getting some listeners out there some information, things that they don't normally come across, especially at gun shops. You know, not just with the fluorescent light, but you're talking about you know, a guy with limited knowledge behind a counter who's ready to sell you anything that you want to spend your money on. So this should help you in that buying process of, you know, whatever you want to buy, having a little bit more education behind it and, you know, buy once, cry once. So, (laughs) yeah, well, yeah, I, uh, it's, uh, you know, in the the American made stuff, you know, it costs a little bit more. So there's that buy once, cry once stuff there, but it is, it, I just, I just enjoy talking about optics because it is something that, uh, uh, you don't get, uh, you don't get to talk about a lot. Right. Or you don't, you don't hear about the, the inside workings, you know, the scopes and stuff a lot. So I, I really enjoy, you know, giving a little, uh, giving people information, like you said, so that they can make educated decisions when purchasing. So. Absolutely, man. Well, again, appreciate it. Thank you. And I will have to catch up with you later because I know that we have only touched the surface of everything that we can discuss. So, (laughs) Yeah, for sure, man. Just let me know. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate it. And I will chat with you later. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Pretty awesome conversation with Nick from Leupold. Always good to get those guys on and just get their perspective. And, you know, obviously he loves the product. He works for the company. 
but it's great that we can try to put biases aside and really just talk about how things work and what you're looking for when you're out there shopping for an optic or you're trying to get the best bang for your buck right it's not always about that glass quality it is important but there's other features and mechanics that we're looking for so again until next time if you're a patreon subscriber we'll be releasing our training portion of this episode here shortly and if you're not go get on patreon hit subscribe sign up Get yourself in there so you can get those podcasts, that valuable information you guys are seeking, so you can go to the range and do something productive with yourself. Until next time, this is Tyler, and I will catch you later.